0: Hi everyone, this is Elise Chenier, Director of the Archives of Lesbian Oral Testimony. Thanks for tuning in. I wanted to let you know that you can find and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you like what you hear, consider throwing us some stars. It really helps us get the word out about the archives. And if you like what we're doing and have some loose change, think about becoming a financial backer. We're here to serve the community, and to keep doing that,
1: we're going to need a little help. If you can play that role, please get in touch with me by email at e. C-H-E-N-I-E-R at S-F-U
0: Thanks, everyone. I'm Kelly Hitchcock, and you're listening to the Lesbian Testimony Podcast, a project for the archives of lesbian oral testimony at lotarchives.org, which is an online, trans-inclusive, open-access archive for oral testimony of same-sex or same-desiring women, including lesbian, queer, and two-spirit people. Each week, we'll talk to a donor from the archives about one of their donations or an oral historian about their recent work. So today we're speaking with Dalena Hunter. She's a librarian at UCLA Bunch Center for African American Studies and is currently working on her thesis, which explores how archives capture black lesbian experiences and how these materials are used by researchers. Yeah. Hi, Daylena. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us a bit more about the aims of your research?
1: Sure. The aims of my research are basically to bring attention to some of the archival and research issues that affect Black lesbians. And I chose Black lesbians because, as you know, Black lesbians have an intersectional identity. And in doing my own research, Just, I mean, in terms of taking classes and kind of looking around for a thesis topic, I was finding that people who were not only at the margins, but who were like at the margins of the margins, weren't well represented in in archives. And it seemed to be because they kind of didn't closely align with various research missions. And I wondered how that could be improved from an archival perspective. And I also wondered how having a conversation with people who actually use those materials could inform what we do in archives in terms of capturing or gathering those experiences.
0: So when you say margins of the margins, what does that mean? Or do you have sort of an example of what that would look like?
1: Well, yeah, when I say margins of the margins, I'm forgetting the term that is used for that. But within any group, you have a normative idea of what that group looks like. You know, so for African-Americans, you might think of a middle class or, you know, working class African-American family. And so a lot of the history that we have about African-Americans kind of focuses on that experience and the experience of people who are trying to maintain that but if you're you know if you have a non-traditional family or if you're queer or something like that then those stories tend to be marginalized from like what the main narrative of African American history looks like so a similar thing happens with women's history and with queer history i argue And I think many people have argued as well that there's this kind of normative idea of what that community looks like. And so then experiences that deviate from that norm are just very poorly represented. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I was reading up on some of your symposium work that you've done for your thesis, and I kind of wanted to ask you a few questions from what I read. So really, you're unpacking a lot of interesting political structures, and one of the terms that you use was called record keeping culture and how you thought it had sort of contributed to the silences in the historical record for black lesbians and archival material can you maybe elaborate on that term and how you think it's affected
1: yeah when i talk about record keeping cultures it comes from a couple of areas there's work that's done, it's like ethnographic work that's done around the idea of different workplaces or different professional spaces being cultures, you know, there being a specific culture, like a corporate culture or an institutional culture that's at work. And in that sense, you, in thinking about how to improve a practice, I think you very much have to consider how specific institutional cultures how they understand the professional principles, how they employ them in their workflows and things like that. And so in unpacking these processes, I think it's important not just to think about the invisible or unconscious biases that people apply to their work as, you know, as an individual archivist, but also what types of biases or what types of perspectives are, encouraged and nurtured in an institutional environment. And so that's kind of come out of the work of Karen Trace in terms of archival ethnography and and really getting into the culture of an archives to see and to understand how it works from the inside out instead of trying to work from the outside in in understanding what that looks like.
0: Yes, this is affected <laughs> Black lesbians' experiences and their archival record. Do you have any more interesting findings that you want to share?
1: Yes, I do. One example is kind of the difference between how archives, I mean, if they even do this, how they say that they, like what their collection statement is, you know, versus how materials are actually collected. And so in archives, A lot of the collecting seems to happen around building trust with various communities and building relationships with donors and donor communities. And of course, you know, building relationships with donor communities sometimes may depend upon having people who are knowledgeable of or part of or even aware of certain communities who are able to kind of reach out and meet people or the archive having a certain reputation to where people feel comfortable reaching out to them if they have materials that might be of interest to a given community. And so I think it happens because there aren't as many connections within the various archival communities and black lesbian communities. And so in doing my work, I found that the sites that were most successful in acquiring materials that reflected Black lesbian experiences, those were the archives that had people who were a part of Black lesbian communities in some way, either they were Black and they were queer, or they were Black and they were lesbian, or they were just queer or interested in queer studies or something like that, whereas the institutions that had a smaller representation didn't have those kinds of connections. And so I found that to be an interesting but maybe not very surprising finding because I might have assumed that was the case, but I wasn't sure if that would actually be supported by the data that I collected. But I found it was supported that archives were very much reliant on relationships with these communities and representation, not only in archives, but kind of this knowledge and awareness of the work that archives were doing in black lesbian communities. And those connections didn't seem to be very strong, or the sense of trust didn't seem to be very strong between the two.
0: Yeah, that seems to make a logical follow. So, and I also really liked the term cultures of dissemblance from black feminist theory that I was also reading about. Can you sort of explain the context of that term and how it relates to archival silences?
1: Yeah, that's a very, actually a very interesting connection that I'm finding because cultures of dissemblance refers to, I guess you could maybe say a culture of practice within African American communities, specifically that black women practice. So it's about dissembling, right? Kind of hiding or shielding what your own interior feelings are, right? Your own personal perspectives when you are interacting specifically within like a white atmosphere. I don't think code switching would be a good example, but in terms of just being very private about personal lives and not allowing say employers or coworkers to see how you truly feel about a given situation. And it's as a mode of self-preservation and self-protection in a dominant environment where, you know, your livelihood or even your personal safety depends on being able to kind of lead your employers or your coworkers to believe that you, that you're more maybe accepting, like accepting of their perspectives or something, like not challenging that perspective. And so it's really about kind of silencing yourself to maintain personal safety and job security and things like that. And in addition to cultures of dissemblance, I talk a lot about respectability politics. And and I think that the two of them are closely connected, because there's this sense that, again, going back to this normative idea of a given community that we, and when I say we, I mean, like black people, we need to always represent the race in a positive light. And so we don't want, you know, our non black colleagues and co-workers and whatnot to know of any weaknesses in our community or in ourselves or, you know, any conflict or things that may not be, I guess, respectable or things that might be perceived as deviant. So when it comes to dissembling or this kind of self-silencing in archives, I think it becomes very interesting because there is this sense of people wanting to forget certain things in archives, you know, looking at like memory studies and people wanting to create the kind of history that's more comfortable for, for given communities, like in thinking of like war uh, trauma and things like that. People have done research in those areas and they're finding that sometimes communities want to forget certain things, like they don't want their history to be focused on these various types of trauma, so that when it comes to cultures of dissemblance, it's kind of a a way of protecting oneself as an individual, but it also seems to be a way of protecting the community from this certain type of maybe unwarranted attack or people criticizing the community and making these unfair attacks on the community itself. And so in dissembling Black queer voices become kind of erased from the history of Black people in general, that gets represented.
0: Right, that's so interesting. So <laughs> yeah, there's like a lot going on there. It seems like people are trying to preserve or it seems like there's an issue of like a collective memory that people are very aware of, and want to like, have a certain influence. Like they don't want to have too much of an influence on the collective memory, like in the war examples that you were giving. And then it's interesting how you're relating it to respectability politics and cultures of dissemblance and how those two are intersecting to create a certain record, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of this self-silencing in order to present a smooth and unruffled surface to, I guess, the general public, but then while that may protect us from some sort of, you know, race prejudice or homophobia. At the same time, it does a disservice to those of us who only have access to that kind of history through archives. And so I think that's where it gets interesting in talking about this issue.
0: Yeah, I really like that you're drawing those two things together because I think a lot of times these cultures of dissemblance, it seems like sort of a private quiet thing that happens like in the workplace or in any place in society, but really it has a huge impact on the people experiencing it and also on how we're able to preserve their actual experience, which is different than what they feel like they need to put out to the world kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And so I was just, you know, reading this book that's totally unrelated to my research And for the record, I hear that that's a good, healthy thing to do, (laughs) (laughs) because it can help you make connections or give you ideas that you may not have been able to gather otherwise. But this particular book, it's called Red River by Lalita Tatami. Anyway, it's about how this specific Black community in Louisiana, how they remembered this massacre that happened a little bit after the Civil War or Kind of at the end of Reconstruction. And basically what happened is that the Black community was trying to protect its right to have its votes honored. And they armed themselves and they physically went to this courthouse to prevent a white supremacist sheriff and a judge from entering office because you know, they hadn't voted this person in. And the Klan was saying, you know, the federal soldiers have left, right? They're not going to uphold these various reconstruction policies and so we're going to put our people in. It doesn't matter who you voted for, type thing. So the black people and the black men of the community, they kind of gathered around this courthouse to prevent these people from taking office. And what happened is that the clan basically massacred the people who were there and then, you know, went out into the surrounding community and you know, inflicted violence on the families that were supportive of them, you know, so the families of the militia that was protecting the courthouse and their families and families who had protected them. But the way that the history got told was like the white community kind of had it as a race riot. And they honored the white people who had died in the struggle. And, you know, there was a plaque and there was a huge monument to those white people who had died. And it was maybe three Three or like certainly not more than five white people. But in the black community, like maybe 30 or 50 something people had died. When the militia protecting the courthouse went into the courthouse for protection, the white mob burned it down with the people inside. And then the people who came out or managed to escape, then of course they lynched them. But the book kind of goes on and it talks about how the black community, like they didn't talk about it. They discouraged the people who were there from talking about it. They didn't want, you know, the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren to know about it because they didn't want them to be inspired to stand up for their own civil rights in, you know, in this Jim Crow environment. For them, that was a way of protecting their kids from being targeted by these clan members who, of course, their children and grandchildren are still upholding this system. And so it, you know, the novel very much made me think of one way this culture of semblance operates, right? And respectability politics in that the Black community is trying to, you know, they're trying to own land and they want to start a school and, you know, their school is burned down and whatnot. but they're trying to present themselves as, you know, kind of these good black people who, you know, they just want to own their land, they want to work their land, they don't want to cause any trouble for white people. And they don't want their children to have this certain type of militant or aggressive attitude towards the rights that they have as US citizens. So I mean, I know it's kind of, it seems very tangential. But that for me helped me make a little bit more sense of the work that i'm doing because it showed like okay i can see where this culture of dissemblance can be very important to preserving these communities you know to preserving black lesbian communities so that you're not open to attack from the outside but at the same time again it prevents younger black lesbians or younger black queer people from understanding what types of communities have existed in the past Because, you know, unlike just being black and knowing that you're black, it's not often the case that queer people understand that there's a community of queer people that's out there. You know, people think that they're alone.
0: That's a super powerful story and like completely horrifying. And I think it really lends to the importance of your research, especially looking at, well, here's the stakes of why this is important to change. What do you think researchers should be doing to change the record keeping culture and like keep reflexive about
1: their practices? Well, I think researchers are, I mean, they're doing a good job. I think one of the things that researchers could do is, okay, so let me back up. One of my findings is that researchers are creating archives kind of as a product of their own research. And so they're collecting oral testimony they're collecting documents and they're creating this archive and this archive becomes kind of a collection that they work from as they go on in their academic career. And it's something that they share with with each other, you know, with other people. And so it kind of seems like a cottage economy <laughs> where the people who are doing research on Black queers have access to a number of informal collections that aren't part of archival institutions to draw from. So I think one thing researchers could do is talk more about the collections that they're building so that other researchers know that, you know, they don't have to keep reinventing the wheel in terms of creating these collections because it seems like there's a lot of materials that people are, like, doing this over and over again, you know, and it might be productive instead of, you know, creating these collections from scratch every time someone is doing research to share Collections and then attempt to fill in various gaps.
0: Okay, sounds good. So we're at the end of our time, but is there anything coming up with you and your research that you want to talk about for the future?
1: Right now, I'm just really (laughs) trying to finish the dissertation. That's my focus. But you mentioned in the beginning that I'm a librarian at UCLA at the Bunch Center for African American Studies. And so I'm incorporating more of the materials from my area of research into that collection and making more of an effort to make sure that, you know, that it's accessible to people on campus and stuff like that. So those are some of the things, you know, pending the actual dissertation (laughs) that are going on.
0: That sounds really cool. Well, if anyone is in the LA area, go check it out. And if you're looking for other records of queer testimony like dalena's research head to a lot and see if you can find something interesting but yeah thanks so much dalena for joining us today it was a real pleasure and i think everybody
1: learned a lot (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you thank you for inviting me to talk with you no problem
0: see you guys next time This week for our update from the archives, we're speaking to Megan Wally, and she's our archivist, so she's going to tell us what's going on.
2: So hello, Megan. Hi. So we've had a lot of excitement at the archives over the last month or so with our webinar in February and then our two poetry readings last week. But now things are quieting down a little bit, and I'm actually really excited to get back to my regular archival work. And we have a couple new collections being processed that I'm hoping to have up on the Allot site over the next few weeks. The first is the Jean Walton fond, which consists of a multi-part interview with Vancouver actor Jackie Crossland, which was conducted by Jean Walton as research for her book Mudflat Dreaming. And the book focuses on the early 70s sort of fringes of Vancouver and this culture that built up around the Maplewood mudflats. But in the interview, Jackie Crossland who's a Vancouver actress, talks about her early life and her arrival in Vancouver, her slow process of coming out, eventually her career in theatre and the arts in Vancouver in the mm-hmm. 1980s and thereafter. And it's it's a really interesting interview. They talk about all kinds of things. The second collection is called Canadian Women Making Music, and it consists of audio recordings related to the research and publication of the book Canadian Women Making Music, which is by Kaylinda Keevey, a West Kootenai, British Columbia writer and feminist whose stories, articles and reviews have appeared in journals, magazines, anthologies and local newspapers across Canada. But the collection is mainly comprised of recordings of interviews with musicians from like the early 1990s. So keep an eye out for those. They'll be up on our website shortly. And they're really great interviews. So
0: yeah, it seems like we have sort of an artistic thing happening (laughs) of like artists and their work and their queerness kind of
2: yeah these ones are really interesting because they don't focus just on queerness they have sort of other cultural ties which make them pretty dynamic interviews
0: yeah especially because they are sort of historical reckonings as well well thank you megan and tune in next time you guys Funding for this project is provided by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, a federal research funding agency that promotes and supports post-secondary-based research and research training in the humanities and social sciences.